Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine lovers. So today's episode, I'm talking with Tim Jackson, Master of Wine. So we'll pick his brain a little on how those exams were and how hard it was to do. Plus, his chosen subject, as that's what he's drinking at the moment, is fortified wines. So this episode is now all about that. So before we get to the interview, I'm going to talk about my winery of the week. So I came back from South Australia in 2015 and with me, one of those bottles was a 10-year tawny from Sepplesfield. So I've been waiting for the opportunity where I'm going to open it up and it seems now is the moment. So let's talk a little bit about Australia and their fortified wine. Barossa Valley in South Australia is where it all kind of started. Shiraz came over, it was planted in 1843 and this whole area was actually founded on fortified winemaking. Very soon after, Seppold's family arrived. They were escaping religious persecution and they set up Seppold's Field in 1851. This is just 15 years after the settlement of South Australia. If any of you can get out to Barossa to go and visit Sepplesfield, you need to go down Sepplesfield Road, which is also known as the Avenue of Palms. Vineyards on each side. It is absolutely beautiful. Google the Avenue of Palms and let me know what you think. It's stunning. Now, what's really special about Sepplesfield, they do make some still table wines as well, and they're delicious. But in terms of their fortified, they have what they call the Centennial Cellar, which is literally the longest unbroken line of year dated tawnies. Now, when I went there, I was lucky enough to go into this cellar and they took a tiny little pipette of a hundred year old tawny for me, which was just magical. So you can imagine your birth year, super easy, go there. They have every vintage from 1878, so you can taste it. And they are the only winery in the world to release a single vineyard, a hundred year old wine every single year. So this is really cool. So sadly, I'm not tasting the 100-year-old wine. I didn't quite have the money to bring that home. I'm having their Para Grand Tawny. So what they do is they age individually all the great varieties. This is Grenache, Syrah and Mouvetra. They age them in small oak barrels for 10 years and then they blend them in to the Para Grand Tawny Solera. So I've mentioned Solera system. Solera is actually most famously used in sherries, another type of fortified wine. So I'll touch on that in a second. But let's look at this sexy Para Grantoni now. Okay, five years I've waited for this. This is actually a different label. In fact, it's now all a very elegant blue label and this one has a red label. Mm, it's very much like roasted walnuts with a kind of powdered coffee, powdered chocolate. So it's a nice mocha edge with with kind of a vanilla bean backbone. And you know what? It smells like being on a cigar terrace. It's got that nice kind of smoky hint. It's like this savoury vibe. It has a lot going on. Okay, delicious. 
this is it's medium it's creamy with a lovely elegant finish in fact the acidity is definitely there keeping it bright keeping it ripe it's lovely i'm getting a real fudgy edge a vanilla fudge edge kind of those chocolate cafe curls that you get on the edge of a coffee you know like those little biscuits it's got that as well and it's lovely spiciness to it with all that nuttiness that roasted nuts following all the way through fab delicious of course great with chocolate now, for those of you living in the UK, I found this online for a 750 milliliter bottle. You can get this for $27.95 from winedirect.co.uk. And also at venom.co.uk, they have the still wines. So if you really want to get to know Sepultsfield, check out those two websites and enjoy the journey. So let's talk about that Solera system. It is Sherry that is the most famous for using this system. Sherry is a fortified wine that you're going to find down in the south of Spain, specifically in the region of Jerez de la Frontera, and they use the Palomino grape. But this system, as I've mentioned, has been used in the fortified wines in Australia. You can even use this system for still table wines, sometimes non-vintage wines when people want to create a complex and interesting different style where you get the freshness of a young wine with some of the characters and tertiary flavors of an older wine they will put it through this Solera system so what is it basically the Solera system is a maturation system made up of different layers of barrels or what they would call butts so the bottom layer is the Solera where your wine your final product comes out from and then each other layer is called a Criadera you have the first layer being called the first Criadera and so on so generally you have anything from between three layers of barrels above that final Solera layer going all the way up to 14. Now the objective here is that you're adding in the youngest wine at the top you can't take any more than a third of each barrel or butt to go into the next level which is further down the younger wine blends with the older wines so you've got this interesting complexity and the idea is as it works its way down the barrels when you take out your final product the style and the quality is consistent and you have of course this interesting wine with lots of different vintages for this reason you can't get a vintage Solera because it's a mixture of all different vintages and therefore you have an average age obviously worked out from how many different Criaderas you have and for how long you have been running that Solera system. So hopefully that makes sense to you but enough of my chat let's go across to Tim now. Hi Tim thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure thanks for having me. So for anybody who does not know who Tim Jackson is A he is. Of Tim, no? <laughs> he is an amazing should I say amazing? I'm not going to argue, am I? You'll have it. You'll take it. An amazing master of wine. And as I told you before we started recording, you are my first, my very, my very first master of wine. Yes, um, um, absolutely. Um, uh, we, We could make a joke about... I know that you want to, to be honest, I think you would like to make a joke, wouldn't you? I ought to. But you I, I'm going to I'm going to be nice and not I'm a nice boy. You didn't take the bait, okay? Right. So let's talk about you. So when we met, you told me all about how you got into wine, and mm. the one of the things I found really fascinating was that you started 
keeping the label of every wine you were drinking and created like a diary, didn't you? So can you tell me about that? Yeah, more or less. I mean, it's it's a bit more selective than that. It, it, it all kind of started, I suppose, I'd been seriously drinking wine for four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was I was working, I was living with a friend of mine, and we were kind of buying bottles from Majestic or wherever. And there's a bit of an aid memoir, picked up an old kind of black and red A5 book and just started soaking the labels off, sticking them in and writing a few notes about it. Maybe a bit of kind of almost like diary-like stuff, who you were drinking it with or what the occasion was or where you okay. got it or mm-hmm. some other story thing, maybe. It, mm-hmm. It's all kind of evolved over time. Yeah, one book, five years later, became two books, and I just kind of carried on going, really. And um, we're on book number eight now, eight. aren't we? Yeah, and there's, there's about around about 191 to 192 labels per book. So I'm probably at about 1,450 at this point, give or take. Okay, so, you know, you've, yeah. you've, you've, you've drunk your fair share of wine. Yeah, and a good chunk of that is obviously in the purest interest of science and education, of course. <laughs> Oh, you, of course, you weren't doing it for you or oh, to no, have no, fun no. or to get no. pissed, of course. That would be disgusting. No, no I, I have to drink bad wine so you don't have to. <laughs> so everybody who's listening, you can actually go to winebook.co.uk and you've literally got every label up there and the diary entries, right? Yeah, basically, I've posted the whole of up to book five. And okay. It, and, and I gradually work it because I, I, I was kind of at about book six-ish when I thought it'd be a good idea to put these somewhere sensible like online. And so I've gradually kind of working through the backlog. And it takes quite a while to put each one up. Um, but yeah, take a photo of the label, literally type out um, warts and all, uh, mm-hmm. whatever I wrote at the time. So you start to see an evolution. Like right at the start, you're writing a few a few things and it gets a bit more sophisticated. You also write stuff which come back and you, you look at you say, do you know what, how could I have said that about that wine? And that's because I didn't. I didn't appreciate it. Didn't get yeah. it. Like uh-huh. one of the classics, I can go back and, and have okay. a look very early is one of Dernhoff's single vineyard Riesling cabinet, I think. And I kind of did dismiss it as like lemonade or something. Because oh I, really? I, I, didn't I it. used. I didn't get it. I hadn't appreciated it. I hadn't yeah. learned how to see the finesse in it. Mm-hmm. And so it was just you know a bit sweet and lemony. And of course, there's mm-hmm. a huge amount more to it than that. So you kind of have to go back and look at it and say, oh, oh, well, that, that was me in my unsophisticated, I've been drinking wine for five years. And yeah, hopefully by the time you get to books four, five, six, and certainly seven, seven and beyond when I've you know, actually got those two, two MW letters as well. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's a bit more, a little bit more authoritative. Um, so tell me, how long did it take you to do the Master of Wine? Uh, four years. I would say, because I was thinking about doing the Master of Wine, and then I realised that I valued my life (laughs) and also your bank balance oh gosh absolutely now do you have to get sponsorship to try and help with the funding of those samples of wines that you need to try you you, you don't have to but it helps yeah Um, i didn't i was fortunate that i mean i was i'm usually because today you have to be in the wine trade to to be accepted onto the program but but back in 2013 in october 2013 when i joined the program um, I wasn't working in the wine trade, but, but mm-hmm. I'd got enough experience at the time to be allowed in. You, you can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. But I was working in financial services, working in marketing for first for a specialist insurance company and a specialist mortgage company. And, you know, the one thing that's true about financial services is it pays pretty well. So mm. I, I could afford to fund myself a bit. Mm-hmm. But, but if you don't have those resources, then, yeah, if you can get sponsors from a company if you're in the wine trade or if you can you know, pool your resources with other students, um, that's not always possible because other parts of the world where there may be only one, two, one or two or three students, you, you're going to struggle with that a little bit. But pooling your resources is a good way of managing it. I can't remember if I was speaking to somebody or I was read somewhere, but literally for a master of wine, typically 
If you want to go through the program, this person spent well over £50,000 <laughs> with sampling and the exams. And they said that it was very, very normal to be up at six o'clock in the morning before their job doing tasting sessions. So <laughs> would you say that seems quite accurate? Um, well, um, certainly on the financial side, um, it, look, it, it depends a little bit on how many times you fail the tasting exam. And we'll come back, mm. to, come back to that. But I spent about £10,000 a year, give or take. So I did it in four years. It was it was forty grand give or take. Okay, and and that's including the course fees, which includes a whole week of a residential seminar. So okay. there are things that covers, but also you know, fees for the exams, fees for samples, and traveling off your own accord. So mm-hmm. you don't have to travel. You can get examples of what winemakers are doing in reality, which is very very important for passing the theory side of the of the MW. What is actually done, as opposed to what a textbook says you could do. Mm-hmm. You can get that by talking to people and reading, reading things and borrowing examples from other people. So you could, in theory, do that without leaving leaving your, your desk, as it were. But I found it a lot more fruitful, and I learnt it much better if I were you know, there in a vineyard talking to a, a grape grower or in the winery talking to the, to the winemaker about what they did with this wine and why. Mm-hmm. Plus, you get to go to some really beautiful places because most wine regions are. But, you know, so this is my point. You... My clever friend did this in four years. Mm-hmm. And as you know, that is super fast for passing the master yeah, of wine I think, exams. I think the average is, is between five and six. I mean, there are some people who, you know, it might take them maybe as much as nine years and they might take some breaks in the middle because it can mm-hmm. be pretty, pretty full on. Uh, the fastest you can do it is three years. So the program is you do a first year and, and. Oh, you're one year slow. Oh. I am one year, one okay. year slow. Um, I'll tell you how I managed <laughs> to fail my. <laughs> No, I'm not bitter actually at all. So, so the, the first is you do a first year and hopefully you pass through uh-huh. that about 40 to 50% pass straight through to go on to the second year. Okay. At the end of the second year, you are allowed to sit the real exams. Mm. Those are in two parts. There's a theory section, which is essay writing about wine and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's and the practical is the most difficult bit, and that's a series of wine tasting papers. So blind tasting exams, they're time pressured, they're difficult. And the pass rate there is kind of 10 to 15%. That, so that's the difficult bit to okay. pass. Once you pass both of those parts, you can then do the research paper, which is an individual piece of research. Should take one year. Some people will take a little, little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And, and there you are. So I joined the program in 2013-14, sat the first year, first stage assessment, passed that. And in 2015, I sat the real exams, passed the theory, failed the practical. Mm. 2016, passed the practical. 2017, uh, passed my the research paper so how did i fail the <laughs> and let me tell you you know I, i'm as as with many people who go into the program yeah. you know you, you kind of you know, failing stuff is not what you do it's not what i do it's not what mm-hmm. you know i've literally never failed a public exam including my driving test other than this mm-hmm. exam it's the only exam i've ever failed so the second paper is a red wine paper. You have two hours and 15 minutes. It's very, very time pressure to taste 12 wines and then write long form answers about them. Mm-hmm. So you have about half an hour to take the wines. It's about two minutes per wine, give or take. And I was moving from wine number five to wine number six in the red wine paper. And I knocked my spittoon full of red wine juice over everything. No. And well, that was silly, wasn't it? It was, and the next year I controlled a controllable. I got a big, wide, big, wide, flat bottom uh, spittoon that I couldn't knock over. 
But hang on a minute. Now, you say you couldn't come back from that. Now, is that more actually mental? Like, oh my God, I'm horrified and I'm I'm too stressed and I'm shaking and I, I just can't. Or literally they're like... You're, you're a Wally, get out of the exam. <laughs> they're, they're not quite that hard. No, it's, it's, the, it's the mental side. So, so you're under yeah. time pressure and you, you, don't, you really genuinely don't have five minutes to spare. So if you waste five minutes mopping up, which I did, I got that quickly, and then you've got 10 to 15 minutes just getting your head back into, oh, my God, what did happen? Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, that sounds yeah. so sad. Okay, do you know what? Sounds to me then you didn't really fail. It was the wine's fault. <laughs> um, so if it wasn't for the wine, you would have passed in the third year, wouldn't you? I'm happy Take to it. blame Take something that. other than me. Oh, yeah, that's always easier, isn't it? Oh, bless you. That's a very good story, though. So after all that, surviving, all the hard work, because, my gosh, how, how much studying do you think you were doing a week? The tasting side, uh, which I which I probably put quite a lot of effort into, I, I would be doing a big tasting every Saturday, more or less. Um, and and mm-hmm. that meant going and getting the wines and then uh, I would do either open tasting so let's say you want to learn Chardonnay mm-hmm. so the first of these type of tastings I did probably January 2000 or February 2014 I was get 23 different bottles of Chardonnay from around the world from different quality levels from the different parts of Burgundy and put them side by side mm-hmm. and then taste through them in like in a really kind of structured way so not doing it like you would do a wine tasting where you're walking around and you taste them, oh yeah, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll give that a star or I'll give that, you know, a 15 out of 20 or whatever you choose to do. Maybe you scribble a few notes. <laughs> I mean, sit down with a four piece of paper and say, well, what does this, well, what is the tasting note? Well, what's the, what do I think the alcohol level on here is, you know, what acidity have we got? What this, what that? And kind of take, really take the wine apart and mm-hmm. also compare side by side with all the other wines uh you know, the different styles of in that case chardonnay and i did that i probably did between 10 and 20 of those each year for different okay. reasons probably often five or six hours on that day just tasting through uh, really rigorously these, these things and then you pick maybe mm-hmm. pick it up during the week but you know, in the run into the exams probably for the 12 weeks before the exams maybe maybe 16 weeks before the exams mm-hmm. myself and the tasting group we would do a 12 wine blind tasting practice exam Every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. to we finish about half of one once we had the conversation afterwards and so on. So, you know, you, you do have to dedicate something to it. My girlfriend was lucky, unlucky. I don't know. We met six weeks after I'd started the program. So this is the same girlfriend at the beginning as at the end that she stuck yes. with you, right? <laughs> she, she, she survived being an MW widow. Yes. Amazing. Yes. I hope she got some rewards. She did. Uh, well, drank some nice wine. She, she's uh, she's now on the diploma program. Oh, amazing! You've got her inspired. That's yeah. awesome. Okay, really nice to hear. So she's obviously got an amazing wine coach. What's your advice for anybody wanting to hone in their tasting skills? They're not going to go out and buy, did you say 23 bottles of wine in one go? That's, that's mm-hmm. excessive for the average um, sure. consumer. So, so look, I think it depends the level that you're at at any mm-hmm. one time, you know, what's, what's kind of right for you. So there's a certain amount about learning how to taste a wine. Mm-hmm. And really there it's helpful to have someone else to help you kind of calibrate. So if someone says, oh, this is a really acidic wine, well, unless you have someone else to tell you this is acidic or it's not acidic, it's quite hard to kind of calibrate the notion, this idea of something like acidity or or tannins mm-hmm. or sweetness and dryness or, you know, what, what is high alcohol, what's moderate alcohol, what's not. 
Uh, and even just to kind of learn to identify different flavor components and stuff like that. I found doing courses was particularly helpful, especially in that stuff around acidity and alcohol and the, these kind of what we call sort of structural components. So not just the flavor of the wine, but how does it feel? How does it perform in the mouth kind of thing, which it's kind of like fundamental stuff that then makes it a lot easier to do the kind of higher level tasting and things like that. But again, it depends where you are and also what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to get out of it. If you just want to learn about different styles of wine, then I'd get probably you know a couple of different examples of, of major grape varieties. What do we mean by major grape varieties? Well, for white wines, yeah, it's things like Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, probably Chenin Blanc, and I would always say taste Semillon because it's a brilliant grape variety, not necessarily because it's the world's biggest grape variety. And then some of the some of the alternatives, like I mean, Pinot Gris is a brilliant example where you need two two styles of wine, and you'll understand what Pinot Gris is. You buy you buy an Italian Pinot Grigio, which tends to be light and delicate, and then you buy an Alsace Pinot Gris, which is big, powerful, and spicy, and you start to get a sense of what the grape variety is in that case, Pinot Gris, and but also what what can it do. So, you know, that, that range from kind of light, crisp, delicate, not particularly deep, and that's your kind of Pinot Grigio style, and then this kind of rich, sometimes a little bit sweet, spicy style of how's that, and you go, okay, I see how a great variety can be different in different places. Or with Chardonnay, you make sure you've got an, an unoaked Chardonnay versus an oak Chardonnay, and you can see how the, the great variety is in different forms and different guises. So I'd do some of the major grape varieties, and then I'd just be on the lookout for things that are a little bit different. Grape variety you've never heard of. Why not? Place you've never come across. Why not? And that's certainly why I did the relatively early part of my journey, because I was just interested to explore things. And so I would say to people, just don't worry about making mistakes. At the end of the day, it's a few quid here or there. And if you're interested, just take the plunge. Pick that Gruner Veltliner off the shelf or that, or that Semillon or you know that bottle of Madeira. Seriously, do it. Go on, do it, do it, do it. Um, or, or, or dive into a sherry or stuff like that. Just just give it a try. Don't worry about not knowing. Just give it a try. Um, that's so funny because your message basically is drink, 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 go, 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 just keep buying. I like that. I think that's a solid MW message for the wine consumer. Yeah, again, it's this thing about just don't, don't worry about being unconfident. You know, again, assume you can afford to take a few risks with a couple of bottles and some of them mm-hmm. won't necessarily come off, but don't hold back. Don't feel unconfident about just pulling that bottle off the shelf and seeing what happens. Because at the end of the day, you know, you know no one's going to die. It's, it just turns out to be a <laughs> bottle you don't like and, and well, then you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't buy it again. But, but do, do give it a go, you know, give it a lash. When I do my wine tastings with consumers, I actually say to people when they don't like a wine, especially when I know it's actually a well-made wine, it's a good quality wine, I would say to people, that's great that you don't like it. Now let's quickly analyse it. What is it that you don't like about it? Is it too big in the mouth? Is it too strong? Is it too tart? Does it seem like there's too much acidity for you? So that they can actually then know what they don't like, which moves them more to what they do like. And actually, they can talk with more confidence with a sommelier or with someone in a wine shop to help them with their wine journey. So I think it's a great thing to find bad wines for them as much as it is to find good wines, I think. You know, yeah, you know it's almost like any form of learning. We learn from mistakes as much from successes. So yes, we do. I completely agree. All I say is to consumers who maybe don't know so much, give a few things a go. You know, go in the supermarket. There's no pressure there. Pick up a bottle that's maybe a couple quid more expensive. Maybe it's just a little bit unusual. Mm-hmm. And give it a try and you might just find something that you do like. 
Fab. And for anybody who doesn't know, since you've done your Master of Wine, you mm-hmm. are now writing for Francis Robinson, which is awesome. So people can mm-hmm. find some of your literature online there, can't they? Yep. Yep. So some of which is actually also for free. It's uh, available to all. So I've, I've done quite a few wine of the week recommendations, which, uh, which oh, you don't have to be a subscriber to read. I've got one coming out tomorrow, actually. So, uh, yeah. Good. Good. And if anybody ever gets to fly again, <laughs> yeah. you help make the selection for British Airways. Uh, yeah, so I've been uh, been supporting BA for about a, a bit more, a bit over a year. Uh, That's obviously awesome. Been a, a pretty interesting year. Uh, mm. you know, this year is extraordinary for all of us. It's even more extraordinary for the airline industry. Um, but yeah. under normal circumstances, I help select the wines and schedule them uh, onto the flight. I love that. So it's good. And uh, I do fly with British Airways, or at least I used to. Um, <laughs> and they do. They have a nice selection. So let's talk about wine right now. What are you enjoying? What does Tim Jackson, MW, enjoy drinking at the moment? Right now, right wow. now. So well, yeah, to yesterday, uh, tomorrow. I've got a fair number of passions. Um, both my partner and I, we're, we're big fans of Spain. She lived in Spain for six years, so we spent a lot of time with, with Spanish wine. Um, okay. We spent a fair bit of time in the last five years as a result of studies, actually, kind of visiting South Africa. And, and South Africa is a, is a big passion. I think there's some, some fabulous stuff there. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a huge lover of, of fortified wines. I think fortified, mm. I mean, I said, you know, go drink Madeira. I, I, I do mean it. I honestly really mean it. Fortified wines are a much misunderstood collective category. And actually, it's quite hard to describe them as a single category. You know, the, the NW exams in, I think, 2015, mm-hmm had this lovely question. It said, fortified wines are diverse. Why are they not more popular? Well, yeah, it's true. They're diverse. There's lots, a hugely fascinating range of flavours, textures. They're brilliant with different kinds of food. But, but the flip side of diversity is complexity. Mm-hmm. And complexity, the wine world is generally complex. Fortified, the, the, the origins, the styles are so hugely different from a vino sherry, which is pale and and you know, smells well. Frankly, smells of aldehyde. And, and I studied chemistry at university the first time round, and and aldehyde is not something you generally think of as a as a nice flavour. But actually, in that context, they're, they're they're incredible. And then you go all the way across to a vintage port with powerful, deep fruit and full alcohol, and 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 it's sweet and it's tannic. You know, you've got a huge range of different styles to deal with within that category. But once you get to grips with it, once you get to understand and appreciate the, the styles of the different sherries, the, the wines of the island of Madeira, and of course, Port and others, you, you actually find just really brilliant wines, frequently undervalued. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, many of them are robust enough that you can open a bottle and you don't have to drink it on the same day. You can, you can come back to it in, you know, for, with, with a tawny port anytime over, you know, three, four, five months. Or with Madeira, anytime. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. Madeira wines are brilliant. So robust. So robust. Okay, Tim, tell me, what is your favourite of the fortified wine category? Come on. Oh, you're asking to choose between <laughs> my favourite children, aren't you? I want you to, but uh, it is all about time, place, well, food, everything. Let me instead just talk about the thing that I tasted most recently. How about that? Okay, let's let's do that. Go for it. I, I, I have been tasting quite a bit of port recently. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about vintage port because that's what I have been tasting most recently. But mm-hmm. something that's, that's super exciting in the port world is a resurgence of white port. Yes. And particularly white port that's been aged in barrels for a long time. So okay. aged like a tawny port, but mm-hmm. it's white port, white grapes. 
And if you get, you know, kind of 20 year old, 20, between 20 and 30 year old white ports, they can be absolutely outstanding. And I think that you have to raise a glass, particularly to the porthouse of Kopka, um, mm-hmm. who, who've yeah, put a lot of effort and energy into, into promoting the old white ports, of which they have a lot of stock actually. So. Go and find old white port. I was lucky enough to be tasting some Kopka at the Wines of Portugal tasting. You know, back when, when tastings existed and when Sorry, people... so what are those tastings of which you speak? Yeah, these tastings. They were these things that oh, human right. beings, they were in one room together. And no, there was... And, no, no, no. This used to happen back oh. in the past, a long time ago. There wasn't like a maximum amount of people that could be together. Can you imagine really? that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there mm. was this tasting this I'm one skeptical. time. <laughs> um, I think it was at the beginning of this year. I think uh, the wine to, or was it the beginning of this year or the end of last year? I can't remember. But the wine to Portugal obviously had their annual tasting. Um, and uh, Copco that was there and I got to taste some of their, mm. their white ports. And they really are, I think, pushing, they're pushing the, the boundaries and certainly actually getting people to know about it more, aren't mm. they? So people should definitely get behind and try. And um, do you want to tell us about the white grape varieties, actually? Because you'll probably pronounce them better than I will. Uh, I'll do my best. I mean, there are a large number of them and that's true of port wine in general. But it's the likes of Rabgasso. Yes. Vizinho. Mm-hmm. Arinto. Mm-hmm. I think there is a bit of Dalje, maybe. Um, okay. And a myriad of others. You missed my favorite, Goveio. Oh. Goveio, my favorite. It's because I like. Goveio. Godello, yeah, Goveio. I like that, the yeah. Spanish slash Portuguese yes. grape variety. Yeah. For me as well, the young white ports are very, very aromatic and actually very pretty and perfumed. I love that. And then, of course, as you're talking, these aged, then they start getting very, very nutty. And the, the complexities, people have to try it, don't they? They do. And it is a very, very different style. Um, from from that kind of young age white ports, which you know, mm-hmm. often a, it's the kind of port that you stick in a bit bit of lemonade, and you've got kind of a nice nice fresh early evening cocktail, which is what's what they're often used for. The young white ports, but the old white ports are, as you say, completely different. They're richer. It's kind of cooked citrus fruit, caramel, mm. spices, vanilla, and a lot of nuttiness. Absolutely, and they get more so the older they get, and they get more concentrated, more rich brilliant with kind of cheeses with some walnuts i mean it's that kind of thing and some you know not just blue cheese which would be the kind of classic thing for red port but, but actually some of the kind of harder cheeses that kind of thing they're they're a super super accompaniment for that really really lovely one so you're talking about white vintage port i'm actually not that knowledgeable about white vintage port at all do you think when they choose the vintages of white port it's as important as what they would do with the red when they make a vintage it, it, it's a little different because if you have a, a white port and it's vintage dated, mm-hmm. generally it's the same style as tawny port that's vintage dated. So a coyote is, is the Okay, term. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there what you're looking for is the characteristics of grapes that are going to do well for a long period of time in a barrel, which might not necessarily be exactly the same set of characteristics as you'd be looking for for extended bottle aging necessarily. And there will be a lot of similarities, but... Mm-hmm. You, what you find with creator ports is quite often they're from vintage dates that are not classic port vintages, as in capital V, capital P vintage port. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think there is probably a little bit more variety. But you know, honestly, I've explored creator white ports a fair amount. But I think that's a that's a great question to to ask to some of the winemakers who yeah. are progressively talk about this. What, what are you looking for in the grapes before you start to make a yeah. creator? white port uh, that, that might be different 
from a from a vintage. When you when you're looking at vintage port, part of the thing about bottle aging is you're blending for a huge depth of flavour, depth of colour, mm-hmm. um, and also a large, you know, a good solid pile of very ripe tannin. So great varieties like Trigger Nationale, which which has you mm-hmm. know all a lot of those aspects have become you know, increasingly popular in, in vintage ports for, for making that lovely tannic backbone that when you then leave them for decades, softens out and, and the tannins you know, polymerize and some of them will fall away in that deposit along with, with uh, quite a bit of the color. And, and the flavors just develop and become that complex, ethereal and exciting mm. uh, glass of wine that you can get from bottle-aged vintage ports. Mm-hmm. I, I just tasted a whole bunch that were, were put together as a lineup from some pretty serious vintages, actually, including 63, 66, 70, 77, 80, and 85, um, oh, um, which, which are some of the, some of the you know, more, more renowned port vintages of the last few decades. And it's, it was fascinating to see the progression of those wines, because if you open a bottle of, like, 2016 is a great vintage. If you open a bottle of that mm-hmm. port now, it's inky black, <laughs> with a purple edge to it, it's powerfully tannic, mm-hmm. huge concentration of flavour, very much uh, fruit and violet and the kind of herbal aromatics from the from the whole bunches that are often used in the winemaking. And then you leave it, say for fifty years, which the nineteen seventies vintage ports are now, mm-hmm. and it becomes this elegant, comparatively delicate, kind of scented, relatively pale coloured. Not no, it varies a bit, but uh, relatively pale coloured butterfly from that. Not a caterpillar of a 2016 young British port because it's, it's, <laughs> it's not a caterpillar, but but the transformation is is absolutely extraordinary, and the longevity of those wines, if you get a good one, mm. is extraordinary. I was finding some of the 63s just starting to fade a little bit in depth, but still have this incredible elegance and fragrance at 57 years or whatever. Wow. So okay, when you've got a port, as you do in the 1960s, and of course it's much mm-hmm. lighter, it's, it hasn't got that same power. What would you pair that with? No, what, what I'd say is when you've got something that's relatively delicate but still has lovely perfume, it's hugely elegant, really just really supple tannins mm. and it's complex and it's interesting, I would just drink it on its own. I'd literally drink it like that. So let's actually look at food pairings then for port wines. We all know Stilton with a good intense root, like you can have ruby port, Labelled a vintage port or even vintage, um, of course. What would you have with the tawny ports? So tawnies are sweeter a little bit mm-hmm. than, than vintage. Sometimes only by, by 10 grams, but certainly as they get older and they get more concentrated, you can get quite noticeably sweeter and richer and fuller. But they're, they're kind of, they also take on these, you know, this, the aromatics of they're a little bit nutty that are Christmas cake and chocolate notes and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. tawnies are fantastic with a whole range of different chocolate stuff they're brilliant with that and because it does still have the kind of dried fruit component like red fruits to it anything with chocolate and red fruit i think is it works really really well and in many ways it can work a little bit better than than some of the young ruby ports because what you don't really have with tawny is the tannins that can kind of dry things out so um, in many ways ruby ports lightly chilled is a, mm-hmm. is a good tip um, that can be brilliant with kind of red fruit desserts and, and, and chocolate and red fruit, that kind of thing. I think they work, they work pretty well and they're, and they're sweet enough to cope with a lot of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Again, they're, they're actually pretty good 
aperitif type wines because they do work pretty well chilled so uh, you know I'd, I'd, I'd certainly drink them again on their own i mean it's the kind of thing where there's enough going on that pairing them isn't an absolute necessity mm-hmm. things with red fruit in it things with milk chocolate dark chocolate both work pretty well mm-hmm. when we're talking about chocolate though when if you're getting into really high cocoa solids chocolate really dark chocolate then ruby port what particularly at the kind of vintage quality is a sublime that works okay. fantastically well would you recommend any ports for savoury food? So, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's funny. Uh, sweet savoury is a, a fascinating concept. So, mm-hmm. uh, something that was recommended to me was for Sauterne. It's actually Bellini's Lertin at Chateau Clemence. She said, we're exploring much more kind of savoury food, not just the classic either you know, foie gras if you're, if you're French and uh, or, or Roquefort. Um, or if you're English, just dessert. She said they, they actually drink Sauterne quite often with roast chicken. Okay. And also with curries. And, and I've tried both, and they do both work very well. On the curry side, I would tend to go for Indian curries, which are a little bit richer and fuller than perhaps the, the kind of Thai style. But Botrytis has a very, um, it gives a very spicy character. It can give a saffron aromatic mm. note um, and kind of ginger spice character. Uh, which works very, very well with the spicy food and curry. The, the roast chicken does also work. The one challenge with those, because they're sweet and they're full, is if you make that your food wine, it's quite hard to get through more than a glass or a glass and a half because it is so rich and sweet. And I think mm-hmm. you do have a little bit of the same challenge with sweeter port and so on. I would say if you have a port which is perhaps longer aged, you know, getting into the 40-year-olds, and they get expensive, but getting into the 40-year-olds and maybe even the 50-year-old uh, level, I, I found they can quite often take on a really spicy character of their own, often a bit woody, a bit of tobacco, dried tobacco character. And there I could see those coming into more kind of savoury food. But again, you've got to be, I think, ca- careful with a wine that's that rich to be accompanying the whole dish, if you tell me. Well, I, I think that's a really valid point. And actually, I was very lucky when I went to Australia, I spent quite a few days with Penfolds and mm-hmm. I was with their fortified winemaker, James Godfrey. But I remember one of the days they really wanted to showcase that these fortified wines could be drunk with savoury kind of salty foods. And I, I remember one of the dishes, which again, it makes a lot of sense. It was a foie gras pâté on mm. toast. I remember that being the starter. I'm pretty sure the main course was a chicken dish kind of all mixed in with like a kind of sweet sauce. Unfortunately, I wish I had written it down. All <laughs> of it surprisingly worked. But you have hit the nail on the head that we were sipping going, okay, yeah, this is good. This is good. But then the alcohol content <laughs> starts hitting your head and you're like, I, you know, I, I would quite like a big glass of something still mm. and fresh. <laughs> and for, for me, that, that's where in, in certain circumstances, actually sherry can be even uh, better. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because they often are a little bit lighter in, in, in alcohol, especially the Fino and Manzanilla styles, which are mm-hmm. around 15 alcohol, so are basically a slightly strong white wine. Because mm-hmm. they're so salty and fresh, um, they're, they're very, very good accompaniments for a number of foods like you know, olives and, and salted almonds and, and even, even fresh anchovies and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While the Amontillado style, uh, often, you know, 17, 18 alcohol, but not, not often in the 20s. Amontillado, especially old Amontillado and Jamón Iberico. Jamón. I was waiting it, to it, see if you were going to come an, with a different one. No, it's no, no, yeah. Epic, epic mix. I, mm-hmm. I went to Borne in, in El Puerto de Santa Maria last mm-hmm. year. And previously we'd stopped in a, at their 
the Hamon area, the Hamon bodega, I think, or Hotas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the same company owns Thinkorkatas, and Thinkorkatas make yeah one of the top top Hamoni Berico. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had Hamoni Berico de Bellota and their VORS range of Amontillado. Uh, the flavor match is sublime. The umami character in the meat and the saltiness in the mm-hmm. meat just match brilliantly with the, the the similar kind of umami salinity in that Amontillado, and that's just an absolutely exceptional match. Have you but just made yourself hungry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have some palo cortado downstairs, so I'm okay. I've got some palo cortado to drink, so we're okay. all right. You know what? I want to ask you a question which I don't know if you can even answer it because mm-hmm. it seems that winemakers can't answer it. Now, mm-hmm. we've obviously nipped across You're going to ask sherries. me what palo cortado is? I'm going to ask you what palo cortado is. All right, so I'm going to try and give you my best explanation. So okay. People talk about it including floor. Sometimes mm-hmm. it does. Sometimes it doesn't have any. The idea is, is that the wines that you've selected to try and make mm-hmm. Fino with tend to be mm-hmm. the first pressing juice with very little tannins, are very light, very delicate wines. Okay. And then they go into barrels that develops floor and it goes in ages and becomes a Fino. Mm-hmm. With Olorosa, you take, take the much more pressed wine, so with a lot more tannins, because it's going to stay in a barrel aging oxidatively for an extended period of time. So you mm-hmm. choose bigger, burlier wines and you send them off to make Olorosa. Palo Cortado, either by accident or by design, mm. you take those first press phenotype wines okay. and age them like an Oloroso. So okay. it might spend a little bit of time, could even be a few weeks, maybe zero, maybe a few months, sometimes a little bit longer under floor, so it can get some floor character. Okay. But basically it's a phenol that's aged, or a pheno lightness and delicateness of wine that's been aged as an Oloroso. So it gains some of the character of an Oloroso, but some of the characters that are more like an Amontillado. Because it's, it starts being a lighter wine, it tends to be a little bit lighter bodied. And they say it will smell, I, 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 my, my memory is it smells like an Oloroso, but tastes like an Amontillado. But some people say it's the other way around, but it, it's kind of got a bit of those two, <laughs> those two components. So that is my best explanation of the Palo Cortado. Okay. Okay. I mean, if the wine world wasn't complicated enough and the fact that we would love people to drink sherry more, mm. just the simple, I love that, that, you know, for anybody just very, very quickly, kind of that levels of the more biological, uh, lighter style is Fino. Then you have Amontillado, which is somewhere in the middle. And then you have Oloroso, which is the nuttier, more oxidative style. So just in case anyone doesn't know that. And then this Palo Cortado is, as Tim just said this thing that kind of maybe is an accident or maybe it was deliberate and it could be maybe an Amontillado-ish or it might be more uh, Oloroso-ish and it kind of is <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it, in essence take the wine you would have put into a Fino and just age it as an Oloroso that's the part okay no I like I like that. That's perfect. So people can um, play around and see. I have to say that, yeah, the elegance in Palo Cortados that I've tasted, I've, I've always picked up and really enjoyed. So, mm. But either way, it tastes delicious, so it's all good. It is. It is. It is. So I, I, that's where I'm going next. There's a glass of it with my name on it downstairs. Are you going to tell me the, the producer? It's an Almacenista Sherry. Cayetano del Pino is the producer mm-hmm. and Viniberia uh, is the kind of team that, that sits behind these and, and puts them together and then sells them through Airman's is the, is the distributor okay. um, who, who kind of own Viniberia. Fabulous. They're very interesting wines from little, little producers. All the labels are kind of kind of old school pictures of like gypsies and stuff like that on the outside. Palo Cortado is available in Waitrose by half bottle ah. for I don't know, 10 quid, 12 quid maybe. It's not expensive. People can give it a go. 
If you don't like it, you don't like it. You don't have to remortgage. Big screw cap, it's half bottle. You know, it'll sit in the fridge for weeks, months. It's fine. It's an oxidative style. Just buy a bottle. Give it a go. Try it with some jamón. Obviously, you've just said how the sherries age quite nicely in the fridge, so you don't need to rush them. We know Madeira is going to last forever. Well, kind of. <laughs> um <laughs> it'll outlive us what about tawny and rubies how long would you keep them open for so most ruby ports ruby reserve ports and lay bottom vintage lbv mm-hmm. you, you can you can open them and hold them open for uh, a couple of weeks so it would generally be what i try to do with them um mm-hmm. for, for the higher quality ports and especially vintage ports people talk about you know, drink within 24 hours. So, you know, you've got to have a good group of friends around who can appreciate vintage because it's lovely stuff. And as it gradually, you know, oxidizes when it's open, you know, you lose a lot of the nuances of it. So, and especially if you've got a very old one, a delicate one, I'd, I'd want to drink that in the same night. So, you know, get really mm-hmm. good friends around. Um, <laughs> uh, tawny ports are pretty robust. Um, so you're looking three, 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 three or four months. Yeah. Similar to sherry. Yeah. And the longer that they've been aged, the more that they've already been oxidized. So they, they can't really oxidize any further. You know, they're fully fortified, so they can't be infected by anything. Mm-hmm. So, so they're, they're pretty robust. Good. So there we go. So people know. So go and try your fortified wines. We did not even touch on Madeira, but maybe I shall have to leave that for another time. Tim, thank you so much. You're amazing. And that's so informative. And so it's interesting just listening to you talk. So if we can ever be together again in the same room. <laughs> well, uh, human, human contact. What, 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 what? If I'm ever able to touch your arm or shoulder <sighs> again, I look forward to that. And you telling me more about lovely wines that you've tasted. <laughs> It'd be my absolute pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much, Tim. Thank Take you, care honey. and have a good day. Cheers. Bye. When you start talking about fortified wines, you recognise what a large category it really is. Now, I've obviously already mentioned from Seppardsfield, a new world fortified wine. Tim and I have already touched on sherry and port and there was that vague mention of Madeira. But there's also a category called Vin du Natural. Fantastic. That's made with typically Muscat, occasionally Grenache. And talking of Muscat, there is also Rutherglen Muscat back in Australia. Now, after my chat with Tim, I sent an email to James Godfrey, who is the fortified winemaker of Penfolds, and he very kindly emailed back immediately with a whole list of savoury suggestion food pairings. So here is what he said for vintage fortified wines. Lots of slow cooked meats, beef cheeks, oxtail, lamb shanks, and with sides of mashed potato or cauliflower. He also says a char-grilled steak. So if you guys want to be adventurous, they are his recommendations. And in terms of sherry, some slightly more interesting suggestions. With a fino sherry, he suggests almond soup and braised sheep brains with capers. Now that is taking food pairings to another level. With an amontillado, try it with pumpkin soup, potato soup and oloroso. Try it with calf's liver or minestrone soup. So if anybody decides to be brave and try any of these food pairings, let me know. I want to touch on what Almacenistas are because Tim mentioned that he was drinking the Cayetano del Pino and this is a Almacenista. So what is that? You have the larger producers that are basically going from grape all the way through to bottle and that's bodegas like Gonzales Bias. What you have was somewhere in the middle, these maturation bodegas, effectively. So 
Almacen in Spanish means warehouse and almacenista means warehouse keeper. So they were taking the young wines and maturing them until they were ready. Now, typically when sherry was having its heyday, the larger shippers often took a little bit of that juice, uh, giving them flexibility. They added complexity as well because they were taking flavours from a specific Solera system owned by one of the almacenistas. But as sales have dropped massively... Basically, the Almacenistas have disappeared, and by 2018, there was only 18 left. Something that's quite beautiful about very small family-owned producers is that these Solera systems are very artisanal and very interesting, so it's not something that you really want to disappear. The rules have changed recently, allowing some of these Almacenistas to get a shipping license, meaning that they can start their own bodega effectively, because they've dropped the minimum amount of stock that you actually need to be able to apply for this license. But it's something that Almacenistas really do represent something more diverse, more complex, typically more interesting. Lustau, who are one of the big shippers, do an Almacenista series which celebrates these wonderful artisanal Solera system wines. And the name of that Almacenista appears on the front of the bottle. So do check that out. Equally, look out for Equipo Navasos, which started as just simply a group of sherry lovers who found some effectively abandoned butts filled with beautifully matured sherry there wasn't enough to commercially release it but they came together bottled it drank it privately but then as word got out and slight more volumes increased it became public so you can taste some incredibly beautiful aged matured complex sherries now you know what alma sinisters are So I'm going to finish with what is more a poem than a quote by Sadly Unknown. And it goes like this. If out of sort we stick to port, the medicine of soul, a ruby gleam, a tawny dream, the vintage is the goal. (laughs) So if anyone wants to share a bottle of vintage with me, give me a shout. So to all you wine lovers, do go out there this weekend, pick your favourite fortified wine to drink. Please, as always, if you haven't subscribed, do that now. Do it, do it, what you're waiting for. Share it. Leave me your comments. I am really interested to find out what is your favourite fortified wine. So until the next episode, cheers to you.